Hi guys, and welcome to another episode of the Dirty Giants podcast. I'm really excited about this episode. I think we got some good stuff and we had some good conversation about the um, proposed bill here in Utah for trail cameras and baiting. We also talk about Tyler's 38-inch wide uh, archery buck from this year, so you're not going to want to miss this episode. But before we start, I just want to thank one of our sponsors, Scree Gear. I was able to try some of their um, camouflage this year, and I was really impressed with it. So if you haven't yet, go ahead and check them out. All right, let's get started. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Dirty Giants podcast. I'm really excited about this episode. We got Tyler Glenn on. And I just wanted him to kind of talk about the potential law coming into effect in Utah for the trail camera um, deal. And then he also killed a really big buck this last year, a 38-inch wide buck. Um, And he just had some really good points that he made on this trail camera um, thing that I didn't even know about. So I wanted him to talk about it a little bit. So thanks for hopping on, Tyler. I appreciate it. You betcha. Um, so let's just jump right into the, uh, trail camera ordeal. Um, do you kind of just want to give us an overview of what's going on? Yeah. So essentially this got, this got brought to my attention maybe like a week ago. Um, to be honest, I can't even remember where I saw it, but it was somewhere on social media. I had seen that there was a bill HB 0295. So HB 295, um, there's been so many, I don't know if you've seen these, but there's been a, a bunch of them kind of going around lately. There was recently one down in Arizona where they were voting on trail cameras down there. Yeah. And then uh, this one up here, and I, I saw that it said Utah, and so I kind of got to reading it. And then I honestly didn't look into it much at all. I just kind of kind of let it be. Um, I, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but a couple years ago, they had actually tried to push this through the wildlife board. Um, the trail cameras wasn't a part of it, I don't believe. It was just the baiting portion of it. And they were trying to push it through, kind of bundled up with uh, chronic waste disease. Like, that's how they were trying to kind of slide it through the wildlife board. Okay. Uh, it didn't go It didn't go through. Um, and then this year, I listened to the rack meetings this year, not a single word about it, not a single word about any of this that's on the HB 295. Um, and then I see this kind of, I don't know, surfing Instagram, and I see this HB 295, kind of look at it, and, uh, I mean, we were kind of touching on it a little bit before we jumped on here, but um, the whole baiting trail camera, it's really, I, I don't know why, but it's really, well, I got some ideas, but it's really kind of taboo. You're not seeing many people talk about it. Um, when you are seeing guys talk about it, it, you can tell that it's really kind of split, you know, on on who who thinks that this should go into effect and who shouldn't. But essentially what it is, they got some waterfowl stuff tied up into it, and then they've also um, – some permanent ground blinds is what they're looking to do away with for, for waterfowl. And then they've got um, – trail camera seasons that they're looking to enforce. This is all statewide. So they're looking to, to put a season on trail cameras that would end roughly a 
two, three weeks before archery season starts here in Utah. And then uh, a ban on baiting. So they're, they're looking to do away with bait. However, minerals, salt, attractants like that are okay, which is another kind of a gray area that we can get into. But yeah, um, I saw that, didn't really pay much attention to it. And uh, I had a good buddy that I was, uh, Brian Reed, that I was talking to him on the phone. And it really, that conversation with him kind of triggered me about you know, more or less the overreach that's going on here and, and how the system, how they're, how they're trying to pass this bill. And I started doing a little bit of research, and I'm not, I'm not super politically savvy. I, you know, I don't understand most of the politics and how they work. Um, but I got a crash course on it over the last couple of days. And that's, I mean, it's really intrigued me more and has got me talking more about this subject. Um, so one of the main things, um, whether, whether you believe that trail cameras should or should not be allowed or baiting should or should not be allowed, uh, kind of the, the main thing that's, that's been puzzling me is how this, went around the wildlife board. So here in the state of right. Utah, we have the wildlife board, which that is their area. That I mean, what they do is manage rules and regulations in regards to hunting. The nice thing about the, the wildlife board and the RAC members is when issues like this come up, it's open for public discussion. So you or I could go in there, we could listen to the meeting, we could stand up and voice our opinion in the meeting, and then they would vote on it. Uh, say they wanted to do the exact same thing, they were like, yep, let's, let's put, a, let's put a, a ban on baiting and let's put a season on trail cameras. They can revisit it from year to year and make adjustments to help fine-tune this over time. However, this, this didn't end up going through the Wildlife Board. Uh, Representative Casey, one of the senators here in, in Utah, um, drafted up a piece of legislature that's, that he's essentially writing a law that will ban baiting and put a season on trail cameras. So right now it's already gone through the fiscal meetings, it's already gone through the ag meetings, and the next step, um, from my understanding, is to go to the Senate floor where the senators in the state of Utah are going to vote on this. There was no public opinion or people being able to talk about this. Um, when they do vote on it, you're going to have a bunch of senators who, if I had to take a guess, most of them don't know the first thing about hunting or wildlife conservation. Right. So they're going to be the ones that are voting on this. And then when it gets passed, it goes into, a, it goes into law immediately. So it's going to go in right away and, it's going to be almost impossible to undo once it's been done. So See, for me, that's what, yeah, that's what kind of caught me too. Cause I feel like uh, we kind of have the same stance. Like from what I got from you is you, either way, it's not, it's not a huge deal. However, with it going into law, it's, if, if it doesn't work out how they think it's, it's going to be impossible to change back. Yeah. Yeah, it would essentially it would have to go through the same process. So you'd have to get uh, a senator to sponsor this, and 
and push it back through the same process. But I, I, I've heard some weird phrases before. Have you heard like the average American breaks three laws a day or commits a felony a day because they break enough misdemeanors that the book of laws is so thick. The problem is when these, these laws get written up, they hardly ever get done away with like that. Once they're there, they're, they're pretty much there. Right. So you'd, you'd have to find a, a senator who's willing to draft this up and and re-push it through the process, and it's just, I mean, it's not likely to happen. And so I, that first and foremost just kind of rubbed me the wrong way that, you know, that that's literally the point of the Wildlife Board is to handle issues like this, and it's not going through the Wildlife Board. It's going around it. And I feel like it's, in addition to that, it's kind of a, a blanket statement, like it's a it's a giant band-aid that isn't even addressing the issues that are going on. And so um, I I kind of had some questions myself. Um, I've got uh, where are you from? I'm from Southern St. George, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm guessing you probably hunt those Southern Utah units. Right. Yeah, I spent a lot of time down there. And I've I've heard baiting is a, a little more of an issue down there than maybe up here. Up, I'm I'm in Salt Lake, so yeah, kind of my main stomping ground is the Wasatch Front. We don't you see a decent amount of it, but you don't see a ton of it. And I've got quite a few buddies that bait it, and my understanding is it's not it's not by any means a canned hunt. You know, you don't you, it's not as simple up here anyways is it's throwing apples out and shooting a deer you know yeah that makes it sound a little easier than it is because a lot of times those for sure go nocturnal oh yeah there's i mean you're dealing with human pressure you're dealing with animals going nocturnal you're Hmm. have you ever hunted bears over bait before i haven't actually i haven't hunted bears that was the biggest eye-opening experience for me with baiting. And and from what I understand, bears aren't actually included, um, in case people are wondering, included in this law, because um, technically they're not big game. They're, um, oh, I, I can't remember. They're considered small game, so huh. they wouldn't be involved in this, but baiting bears is what kind of opened my eyes to how difficult and how much of a grind baiting can actually be. Um, with all the new, uh, all the nuances that go into it, but um, yeah, so I started doing a little research. I I posted a series of questions on my Instagram. I posted, you know, uh, does baiting increase success rates? Yeah. Does cameras increase your success rates? Um, and then I started, and then I asked also, um, in the last five years, have baiting and cameras gotten worse? Everybody, you know, it was a vast majority of the people that said, yes, baiting raises success rates. Yes, cameras raise success rates. Yes, it's gotten way worse over the last five years. Right. And so I I jumped onto the DWR's website, and I started diving into um, some of the harvest statistics in the state of Utah. And honestly, from what I was looking at, I I could not find in the numbers – where where this was driving success rates up, I yeah, couldn't I couldn't I, find it anywhere. Because so you were finding that 
either success rates have gone gradually down or about stayed the same, not gotten higher, right? Is that what you found? Yeah, so uh, I also had a question in my Instagram story of uh, what units seem to be getting impacted the most from from baiting. And so the units that were named most were Wasatch West, and I think that's because obviously this is Salt Lake's huge metropolitan area, and so you're going to have a lot of guys that hit that unit. And then the southern units, Pine Valley, Penguin Lake, Zion, um, all those southern Utahs, or units. Um, so I, I pulled specifically those units, and what I found was on Wasatch West, the success rates have dropped from, I can't remember, I looked at so many units, it was roughly 20-ish percent. It was, it was somewhere 20-something percent um, in 2015, down to 9.7% last year. And then I looked at uh, Pine Valley, um, Penguin Lake, Zion, all those, and they've roughly stayed the same every year. I mean, within a couple percent of each other year over year from 2015 to 2019. So I was, I was kind of struggling to see where this, where this spike in animals being harvested was. Um, a couple questions that got brought up that I looked into, I, I had a, a billion uh, direct messages, but yeah, I had some really good questions. Um, some of them were asking, well, are, are the odds, are the success rates going down because deer numbers are going down? However, when I looked at it, the tag allotment or the tag allocations have stayed the same year over year on most of the units that I looked at. So every year, the, the state sets objectives for every unit. They'll look at Wasatch West and they'll say, uh, you know, currently has 10,000, you know, they'll do a number of different things, but flyovers included, flying over the winter range, and they'll say roughly this unit has 10,000 deer. We think that it's got a carrying capacity of um, 8,000. Just pulling numbers out of my out of thin air right here, but right, we'll yeah. say, oh, we think it's got a carrying capacity of eight thousand based off of uh, winter ground, the acreage of winter ground. They'll look at buck to doe ratios. They'll look at a a bunch of different factors, but they'll say, okay, this is this is the carrying capacity, so we're two thousand deer over. Then they'll start looking at all the different hunts, all the tags that they issue, they'll look at the success rates, and then they'll come up with a plan to get them to that target number, uh, maybe in a season or a couple seasons, but they come up with a plan to get them there. So when I looked year over year, if the deer herd had been declining at that significant of an amount, uh, they would have been issuing less and less tags each year. And the tags on the Wasatch Front specifically it was within like 50 tags every year and not a 50 tag drop every year, but from year 2015 to 2019 every year was within 50 tags. So they're not dropping the tag numbers. Yeah. So obviously there's they're saying at least that the, the herd has stayed relatively the same if they're giving the same amount of tags. Correct. Mm-hmm. And I, there, if you really start to dive into it, I was finding that there's a lot of really skewed numbers out there. Uh, for instance, the the harvest 
um, the success rate on these units. Uh huh. I I fill out uh, a survey every year when I harvest a deer, um, but I I had several people message me saying they haven't filled out a survey, and so how accurate the harvest number is, how accurate can they be with doing their you know their aerial surveys on the winter ground? I, that would those would be really good questions for a biologist. Um, yeah, because they but also general unit you're not you're not turning you don't correct yeah you have to report your harvest correct it's not like a limited entry unit you know where they're requiring you to submit teeth and you know give them all the measurements of your animal and where you harvested it and how many days you spent in the field uh, none of none of that stuff is is on these numbers that i was looking at so another thing i started to notice with all these messages i was getting is I started uh, kind of coming up with the conclusion based on all these direct messages that it wasn't necessarily that the animals were being harvested, it's how they were being harvested. So the issue, I think, is more of a moral dilemma than anything else for a lot of these hunters. Okay. It's almost hunter-on-hunter conflict, um, whether people, their moral compass is saying, you know, baiting is bad or people who are saying, no, it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's perfectly fine. It, it's, it gets into a really kind of gray area there. Um, and the way that I look at it is, like I said, I really just wish this would have gone through the board meeting. Right. Let the rack vote on it. Things could be tweaked over time, and I'm not. I'm. I'm like you. I'm not a huge advocate one way or the other. My whole thought with this, and what I'm, what I was trying to accomplish by posting all this, is like, hey, let's pump the brakes on this a little bit. Let's slow this down. Let's get some public input on this. I know that. I know that this could be a win-win situation if you know everybody came together and put their input onto it and, and spend a little time to draw this up. My goal would be that Utah could be the example for the surrounding states on hunters. Instead of pointing fingers at each other and dividing, they came together and created a solution for this, what's essentially to me, hunter-on-hunter conflict. Right. Well, it's just like we talked about before, it's just like so half and half. Like I've seen numerous different surveys, and it's all kind of split on whether people want it or not. And I I think you're completely right with that. If if they could get public comment on it and kind of maybe even talk to more people who like like you or other hunters who have been out in the field and actually seen firsthand what it could be, and then if if the if it wasn't put into a law like that where we could tweak it and do what's necessary, it'd be a lot better because, I mean, all the big, all the people who like big deer, they want the best for the deer. <laughs> so for if, sure. if that's what's best for the deer, then we'll, like I'm all for it, but I don't know if, if I don't know. I don't know if that like. Absolutely. Like, that's no, the I- I agree 100%. I think 
you know, some of the stuff, like when you get into um, the trail camera band, for example, um, that, that was actually more divided than I initially thought it was going to be. I thought there's no way people would let the, the trail cams go. Um, and what I found on that is the majority of the people who are against trail cameras, they're, they're the guys that are talking about desert units that are drier units with not many water sources. And so the stories I keep getting are, hey, you come down here and there's 20 trail cameras on a single water hole. And when you factor in all those different guys going in to check their cameras on a regular basis, that's putting a ton of pressure on that water hole. And that's going to mess with the, the deer patterns. I completely agree. We don't, up, up here in northern Utah, we don't have that issue. At all. <laughs> that water's pretty dang abundant. Like, yeah, you probably actually cameras on water because there's so much of I, it. I don't. I don't hang cameras on water at all. It's so unreliable. It, the deer can go long periods of time without watering. You know, I, I think even into the, the week's time frame, um, without watering because there's so much moisture in the vegetation up here. Um, but so some of the stuff that they could look at, instead of throwing this blanket statement out there, like, okay, let's, let's start with a ban on trail cameras on man-made water sources, like guzzlers, um, you know, water tanks, different things like that. Put a, put a ban on there, um, run it through the board. So this can be true can be tweaked here in a year or two, but you could do that. Cell cameras, you know what, that, that's probably good to ban those as well. Technology is getting pretty far advanced, so go ahead and take those out. Um, I mean, open to suggestions here. And let, let some of these guys who are adamant that trail cameras be banned, let them come in and join the conversation and say, you know, this is why we don't like them. I'm sure we could meet in the middle. Um, Baiting is another another topic, and from my understanding, from all the messages I got, was the main problem that people are having with baiting is, one, it just isn't aesthetically pleasing to them when they're walking through the mountains and they see a pile of apples. Don't know what to tell you about that. But the, the main thing was outfitters running them, running them like an operation, which, I mean, they're an outfitter, so they are going to run it like an operation, but... Yeah. Having these huge bait sites with, you know, big feeders set up. So I maybe set something up with outfitters and baiting. Uh, it, it gets so great the way that they wrote it. They say, they say that if you own private land and you're using how did it say, organic, it's like organic uh, livestock feed, so I got a buddy who owns, he owns some acreage down in southern Utah, and he's like, "Cool, I'll buy a llama and throw it on my property." Like, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll put my apples out and I'll have a llama out there. Like, what are they going to do? Um, trail cameras are still legal on private, so there's there's still some gray areas. Uh, minerals, you can still run minerals and salt. Yeah, I, me, I that's up right here, so you can use. The use of salt, mineral blocks, or other commonly used types of livestock substances. Yep. Um, so the, I just feel like, <laughs> I don't know. But what... Is that sweet yeah. feed? 
What was that? Sweet feed. I said, is that sweet feed? Yeah, sweet feed is a livestock substance. That's a, a lot of guys use that to bait deer. It's like a little alfalfa pellet, right? With molasses mixed in. And then so, what's interesting too is it says. Um, so is there a season on baiting too? So you can you can bait up to August first. Is what? Is, am I reading that right? It's the same. Uh, I don't think there's a season on baiting. It's a. Um, from how I read it, it was a okay. just a flat out ban on baiting. Um, oh. Yeah, I think maybe I read that wrong. That's but, what cameras, but to me, the if you're running salt and minerals, what what is the point of salt and minerals? It's it's to bring those animals in. Most of the time, to bring them in front of your camera, right? To get pictures of them, so you're. You're baiting them in. You're bringing them in. If you sit over your salt or your minerals because you got a deer hitting it, you're baiting. Right. As <laughs> it, plain as day. So how is how is one form of feed banned, but another form is okay? Well, and then I I think one point that I wanted to talk about too that that you brought up I think it's a really good point so I feel like the overall goal um, of this law is to help the deer herd or to make it more fair so one of the points you made in your post is that let's say that this works how they want it to and then the deer herd increases like are we just going to see more Tag. Yeah, and the, the, the deer herd doesn't even have to increase. Uh, if the success rates go down, so once again, I'm using Wasatch West up here, but the success yeah. rate is 9.7%. So, like I said, I couldn't find it in the numbers, but let's just say that it really was having an impact on success rates. Let's say the success rate next year drops down to 5%. The next year, it's 5%. Mm -hmm. The state is going to have to do something about that because they're no longer on track to their objective for that unit. So what are they going to do? They're going to up the tag numbers. They're going to up the tag numbers to where they think they can get back up into the success rates they're looking at. So I I was asking a buddy the other day, what would you rather see on the mountains? Would you rather see... Uh, would you rather be running into cameras and some occasional bait piles, or would you rather be running into a uh, 25% increase in hunters? Yeah. And in addition to that, I could also almost argue the point that baiting is less intrusive on the animals and on the mountains. When you have a bunch of guys that are down there in southern Utah that are going into these big cedar stands and setting up a bait pile. They're going in there. They're slipping in early in the dark. They're getting set up in their ground blind or their tree stand, and they're they're basically sitting still. And those animals, I mean, they could bump a little bit if they catch wind or movement or whatever, but they're kind of just going about their normal pattern. If you all of a sudden ban this baiting, you're going to go back to guys marching all over through the trees, all over through the timber, uh, Putting boots on the ground, essentially. Yeah. So, in a way, you're almost going to see an influx of human traffic 
indirectly that way. Right. So another thing I've heard on it too. So what do you think, do you think it will affect the age class of deer? So if, if you're not having trail cameras, um, the argument that I've seen a lot is that you don't know that there's a bigger deer in the area. So you're going to shoot maybe not the biggest deer in the area and overall it's going to affect trophy quality. Or I've also heard the opposite, that the older deer will be able to get even more older. Like, what are your thoughts on that? So, I I heard a kid on Instagram the other day that was saying, uh, he was basically saying he was impartial to all this, didn't really care, but he said, you just mark my words, if they if they ban this baiting and these game cameras, all these guys that you've seen that are consistent aren't going to be so consistent anymore. I, I literally laughed out loud because the guys that I know that are super consistent in the hills, they're going to be consistent no matter what. You, you, you can take one tool away from them. They're the guys that are hardwired to get after it. They're the guys who are spending a freaking ton of time in the hills regardless. You, you can take away one tool from them, but they are still going to be out there killing deer. I, I, I would be interested to see how that goes after a year or two, if it went, went one way or the other. Mm-hmm. What I would say, I've got one experience I can draw from. I had a buddy who shot a deer this last year. Uh, he had on camera, so there was two bucks that were living in this, in this basin. One of them was a non-typical stud deer pushing 200 inches. It was like right at the 200 inch mark. And then there was a four point that was with him that was like a 180 buck. You know, nice, clean, typical 180 buck. But you look at him from a mile away through a spotting scope, I don't know, maybe you assume that the buck with the bigger headgear is the older buck. However, after watching those two deer for a couple weeks on his trail cameras, it was very clear that the the clean four-point was by far the older deer. Uh-huh. So I think, and, you know, Ryan Carter's talked about it quite a bit, using trail cameras to assess age class on bulls to help them target specific bulls. I've, you know, I've used, I've tried to use game cameras, you know, in the same fashion to try and, help find that next age class um, to really size up deer. I'll put, I'll put game cameras into certain areas. And if there's, you know, they don't, if there's nothing in that area, that's that kind of that next age class up, I'll pull my cameras out of the area. You know, I'll leave them up there for a couple of weeks and then pull them out of the area. So right. I don't know that, I don't know that deer, I, I think where you might see deer getting older is with your average your average hunter who's juggling a nine to five job and a family and everything else he's putting his trail cameras up and he's checking them, you know, once a month, isn't doing a ton of scouting, um, and is going to be tickled pink with a, with a 150 buck, you know, 145 buck. Right. And, and maybe they use that trail camera to find an ambush location and, and kill that deer. Um, but at the same point in time, they're also 
going to be able to just go and glass up a buck like that and go get it killed. You know, those guys are going to kill that caliber of deer regardless. The yeah. difference is you're going to take the, the cameras out of the hands of the guys that really are trying to target that older age class. Yeah, I think I agree, too, like with what you said. Regardless, those top-end hunters who kill big deer every year are going to find a way to kill big deer every year. Yep, absolutely. So, yeah, I wanted to get your story on your buck this year, too, but do you have any, like, last, like, anything else you want to touch on on this bill? The one, on? The one thing I would throw out there is when you, so you can figure out cameras. I think you can figure out cameras <laughs> by bringing forth the people and letting them speak. And I think you could do the same thing with baiting. The, the taboo part about baiting and why, I think you have a lot of guys who aren't wanting to talk about it because it's kind of taboo that they probably do it, but they're not wanting to talk about it. And you got a lot of guys who don't do it, so they don't even care to talk about it. So there's really nobody talking about it. But like I said, I think it's more of a moral situation than anything else. And for me, the way that I look about it, I don't care if you like it or if you hate it. There's things in hunting that I do not like myself, but I would never push to get them. I would never push against a fellow outdoorsman or a fellow hunter to get them banned. Uh, you know, mountain lions, for example, they run those with hounds. When I first thought about that, before I had ever done it, I was like, yeah, it's like a canned hunt. They turn the dogs loose and you kill a cat. Couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, trappers. I, I don't know why. I personally get a little uneasy about animals being caught in a snare or a trap and however amount of time that they're in there before the trapper gets back into dispatch them makes me feel really uneasy but i know i know the tradition and the heritage and everything that goes with trapping and those are our fellow outdoorsmen you know that's something that obviously they found a passion for and it they're the same people that we are so i support them you know if they were under fire i would step up to to help them fight their fight when you start looking at baiting for deer it's it is just such a slippery slope I, I mean, personally, I would almost rather see uh, sliding sights on bows. I'd almost rather see those banned. Get, you know, you've got guys that have no business taking 100-plus-yard shots that are maiming deer, yet when you're, over, when you're over a bait pile and you're shooting them at 20 yards, what's more ethical, a clean, quick harvest or an animal that's got an arrow in its ass and dies a week later and it's never found and the meat goes to waste? Right. Uh, you could look at, you could look, I mean, there's a million different things. There's elk calls. You're baiting the elk in with your call. There's radios. There's e-bikes. To be yeah. honest, yeah, go ahead and ban e-bikes. You got guys that should not physically be as far into the backcountry as they are. I, it just gets, it gets so slippery when you start talking about something like baiting. Like, you know, what's, what's moral for you and isn't for me? My, my kind of opinion on all of it is as soon as they take one thing from you, it's that much easier to take the next thing from you. And so, like I said, I, 
for me, it's kind of, I've been speaking up about this to put my foot down on the overreach and to, to run this through the proper channels, run this through the wildlife board. Let the, the guys who are literally set in place to do this kind of thing, let them do it. So. Yeah, well, see, that, that's completely what I agree with. I think it just needs to go through the right channel so they can they can change it how they need to. They can adjust it how it needs to. Um, yep. I think I think you made some really good points. And, and the, yeah, but... Yeah, so. and like I said, not every not everybody's going to agree with me, and that's just fine. Like I, you know, that's what makes this country so awesome, and that's what makes human beings so awesome. Is everybody's got a different way of looking at things and a different different opinion on something, and uh, that's that's why I also believe that this could this should be a win win topic. I mean, really, it if we can just pump the brakes on it and and let the people get together and talk about this, I, I have. I have no question that Utah could be the example to other states of of hunters banding together and and finding stuff that works for us. So, right. So yeah, that. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say yeah, that deer uh, I shot this year was <laughs> special. That's insane. <laughs> Thirty-eight inches wide. Had did you have know about them like years prior, or did you just find them this year? The kill that you yeah. Killed? So I uh, I knew about him. I think as early as 2015. Oh wow! Um, he was just kind of a little spindly three point, but he looked like a whitetail. I had found him on the winter range. Uh, my yeah. buddy, my buddy had actually found him on the winter range, and we were glassing together one day, and I saw him and. And then I went back, and he was there in 16 and 17 and um, 18. He he was kind of just keeping his same frame. It was just getting just a little bit bigger every year. By the time I want to say 17, he was probably pushing 30 wide. 18, he was probably right at the 30-inch mark. And then 19, he came back um, as a 4x5, and he was probably in that I heard several people guess him. He was 32 to 34. Um, not a ton of mass, but I, I thought of, I thought he was like right there at the 190 mark. Just a, just a really good buck, really good buck, and it was kind of a down year. And uh, I was kind of traveling from one hunting spot to the next, uh, glassing in 2019. This would have been like the first week of November, and I had glassed him up. And normally he wasn't down to the winter range until he's one of those bucks that would stay up super high all the way until, you know, like December. And by then the hunt's already closed. Right. And I was cutting through the area and I glassed and he's right out on this open face pushing does. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> so I see some other hunters and I, I'm just trying to keep eyes on him, watch where he's going to go. He's on his feet. And I knew I, if I, was to take off after him I was going to lose sight of him and they were and he's up pushing does and I'm like I'm just going to lose him if I take off after him so I'll just hang tight and watch and I see some other hunters take off after him and they bump him and he goes into the next canyon over so I get up there that night I, I get into that next canyon over can't turn him up before dark um and then the following day I end up turning him back up and I have my buddy's dad glassing for me and he's kind of the 
the older generation of Hunter. Oh, okay. uh, he's he's just got like his ten by forty two binoculars, and we're like a mile away, and the buck beds down. And I'm like, well, here I'll leave you with my spotting scope. You can like keep eyes on him for me. And he's like, oh, I'm good with my binoculars. I'm like, how can you even see him? <laughs> just freehanded. Oh yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so I. I put the stock on this deer, and I ended up, I thought I was higher than I, I thought I was higher than I was, and I ended up bumping this deer, so he takes off. I spend every day the rest of November, that was probably maybe around November 5th or 7th or somewhere in there, spend every day the rest of November glassing that mountain. At some point, whether it's a morning glass or a midday glass or an evening glass, just whatever I could squeeze in up there glassing for him and it was it was uh the hunt ended on like a saturday it was a friday and i get a phone call from my buddy hank and he's like get your ass over here i found him no no way (laughs) so and you know he didn't have to he didn't he didn't have to call me i mean he could have taken off after the deer but i think he knew i had spent so much time watching him he was he felt like I had earned him, maybe. I don't know. So I, I get over there. That's a good friend. <laughs> oh, dude. God. <laughs> Once again, his dad stays back. Uh, I'm going to make the stock on the deer. It looks like I've got a really good route in on this buck. And then Hank, we positioned him kind of over in an escape route. Okay. And I slip in on this deer, and I don't even – I was in crunchy snow. I don't even know how I got as close as I did, but I get in. I get in and I've got this small little window in the the scrub oak that's it's like halfway between me and him. This window in the scrub oak and I, my arrow, if I can pump, if I can get through that, it's gonna gonna drill him. So I take the shot. I hit him right up in the shoulder, but oh. I have really good penetration and he bombs straight downhill. The the clouds roll in, it's socked in. My buddy, I wait for my buddy and his dad to get over to me, and we jump on the blood trail, and it's like somebody's walking around with a paint bucket, just like a, a stick. Like, if you saw these pictures, it's crazy how much this deer bled. So we drop straight downhill, about 100 yards, and then you grab side hill, maybe like 300. And now I'm, I'm starting to get nervous. It's like 400 yards. They're like, dude, you, you crushed him, like... He's going to be dead. He hasn't gone back uphill. And then as soon as that conversation happens, this deer turns and just starts going straight uphill. No way. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> now the snow, the snow flurries, it's starting to snow on us. And I can't imagine after the amount of blood that I've seen that this deer is going to live. And right. so I kind of make the, the decision on the fly, like, I got to stay on this deer, even if I bump him. I got to stay on him tight because if it snows, it, it, we were supposed to get like six inches of snow that afternoon. And so I'm like, if it covers up in snow, like I'm never going to find this deer. So I get on him and I'm following him and the deer, he's already bed before he even started uphill. He's already bedded, um, twice. So I started following him uphill and to make a long story short, I ended up trailing him uh, about two miles and 2,500 feet of vert Jeez. up the mountain. <clears throat> it's now put down, in the time that I've done that, it's put down maybe three inches already of snow. 
Is he still bleeding? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's bleeding. He's, by the time I get up to the top where I stopped, I had gone through five beds, and all of them were, the beds were all covered in blood from neck to ass, like soaked. So he's losing. So I, oh, he's lost. I, like I said, I don't know how. It was, it was amazing how much blood this deer had lost. And so he goes over a ridge, and I just had this hunch, like, he's going to go over that ridge. I stopped just shy of the ridge. I'm like, he's going to go over the ridge. He's going to bed down because he's already bedded several times. He's going to bed down facing back at this ridge to watch his backtrack. So I marked it on my, I marked it on my onyx and I pulled off the mountain. The next day, it's Saturday. It's the last day of the deer season. Um, we ended up having to wait until like noon because it was still snowing. Um, I take off with my buddy Hank and we send his dad up the other side of the Canyon to kind of glance back across for us. Yeah. And, we get literally right where we left him, right where we left him. And my buddy's dad gets on the radio and goes, I've got him. No. <laughs> he just bumped him out of those trees. So he had bedded just over the other side of the ridge. So he's still alive. So he's still alive. And mm-hmm. I'm asking him, because at this point, the snow off this side, it's a north-facing slope that he's on. And he's, he, uh, my buddy's dad tells me he's dragging his belly in the snow. It's that deep. So I'm like, well, I don't want to sit and push him through that. I'm like, how does he look like he's moving? Is he moving good? And he's like, he looks like he's moving really good. And I'm struggling. It's almost hip deep on me. I'm struggling to walk in it. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to sit and push this gear all over. I'm probably not going to be able to get back on him if he's moving good. So um, we end up pulling off the mountain. I, I get home. I call the fishing game. I was like, hey, I hit this deer. the last day of the hunt. And I hit him yesterday. I'm... I, I think the deer is going to die. Like, I, he bled that much. Now we've also confirmed my arrow. It's just high shoulder. Oh, okay. Um, is it still in him, or do you just see blood? Like, no, it was, a, it was a straight pass-through. Okay. So, so, yeah. so we can just see, like, the it was a two-inch expandable broadhead, and so it put a pretty good gash on his front shoulder. But I just, like I said, I don't know how a deer could bleed this much and and, and – Part of me thought I clipped, like, where where he was explaining I had hit him, I thought I had to have gotten the top of lungs, and maybe that's why it's taken him so long. Or maybe I just got one lung. And so I talked to Fish and Game, and they're like, okay, well, you can keep looking, but do not touch the deer. Uh, you better have, they told me I better have pictures on my phone of the blood trail before the hunt ends. So luckily I had taken a bunch the day before when I had hit him. Oh, okay. And then... They okay. said, "Do not touch him. If you find him, call us up. We'll we'll come up there and and essentially help you recover him and confirm that there was no foul play." Right. So I end up spending the next couple weeks hiking that mountain every single day, like gritting the crap out of it. I, and I can't find him with the glass. I'm like, the, he's got to be piled up under a tree. So I can't find him. And then the same buddy Hank who found him before calls me up and goes, you're never going to, you're never going to guess what I just found. And this is uh, like December 15th, like mid December. And I'm so like, well, what did you find? How long after? What's that? How long after? Like, so what's the time frame here from when the hunt so ends? This is, so the hunt ends, the, sorry, the last day of November. Okay. So this, so this is weeks after. Two, 
two weeks after. So he's like, you're never going to guess what I found. I'm like, what'd you find? He's like, just watch this video I sent, send you. And I start watching the video and it looks like a doe just standing there on a ridge. And it turns and it's super close range, maybe a couple hundred yards through the spotting scope. So it's just clean footage. And the deer turns to face away and it's got nuts. And then the deer turns back broadside and he zooms in and you can see the pedicles on the side of the deer's head. No. And then I start looking closer and I can see a giant scar, like a scab on his shoulder. What? I'm like, no way. So he dumped his, and I even, on his footage he sent me, I pulled previous year's uh, phone scope footage and I did like those pick stitch where you can put pictures next to each other. And I looked at his facial markings and I'm like, dude, that's the yeah. same deer for sure. Holy cow. So apparently he was up glassing and he had seen two little bucks and a doe come over a ridgeline and he's like, man, that doe is like twice the size of those bucks and doesn't pay any more mind and he keeps glassing. He, he's like, man, that's odd. And so he spins his skull back over to look at him again and he caught movement of its junk dangling between its legs and then he put it together. So I was like, holy mm. crap. So I, I end up going up there and watching him from from roughly mid-December, I think the last day I saw him was like March 9th, is when he would have taken off from his low winter ground to start, like, moving back up, following the snow line back up the mountain. And he's just completely so, fine? Yeah, he was. He looked great. Yeah. He looked great when I saw him, like, as of March 9th. And mm -hmm. so um, I have a couple buddies that had showed me trail camera pictures of this deer in the velvet. And so uh, James Yates and Chris Applegate were two buddies that had this deer. James already knew what deer he was going to be targeting this year. Uh -huh. And Chris Applegate didn't draw an archery tag. And so luckily both of them were like, dude, we'll tell you, like I'll, both of them were like, I'll take you up there one day. I'll hike around. I'll show you right where to, to place game cameras. Um, and this is actually going to tie back into that HB 295. So um, yeah. they're like, we'll show you right where to place game cameras, and, you know, you'll turn that deer up and get him killed. And so I'm like, okay, cool. So, um, you know, fast forward to, like, July. Uh, well, with Chris, it was actually end of June. James was, like, early July. They both, like, take a day, go up with me, hike up in there, show me where they've had him on camera. Hung a bunch of cameras, all the known spots that he's hung out, and all the known spots he's been on camera before. I hung probably I don't know eight to ten cameras on that mountain. Fast forward again yeah. to probably August, right around August fifth. So this I... year's nowhere. My cameras have been marinating all of July. He has oh. nowhere to be seen on any of them. I'm like. The deer's like I'm. I'm thinking there's another three point that's got the same genetics that I thought maybe he had just regressed a ton. Yeah. And uh, but the deer looked too young, like it's in his in his body and his face. It just looked like too looked like a four or five year old deer. Okay. So I don't really know what to do, and uh, I'm just gonna start hammering this mountain with you know the spotting scope and. Lo and behold, it was in that first week of August, I glassed this deer up on the other side of the mountain, so just over the top of this peak. He was now hanging out on the other side of the mountain. Um, 
had been right under my nose the whole time. Cameras never found him. I, I, I found him with the spotting scope. And so Jeez. I guess that kind of goes to show that even with cameras, like he's not getting everything. I mean, if you think about it, you place a game camera on a mountain, like you're strapping a camera to a tree that's got one view. Deer could walk behind the camera. It could walk 30 yards in front of the camera and not get picked up. Like, you have to place the camera in the right spot. But I picked that deer up, and then I started watching that deer literally like every single day. I was up in there every single day watching this deer. The hunt started on the 15th this year, the earliest it's ever started. And so I had roughly a week to, to like, try and, you know, figure out exactly what he's doing. Consistent, Like when you say you went, like, could you find him every time you went out and looked pretty much? I was, I, I probably found him out of that like seven day period four times. And all four times that I saw him, he was doing the exact same thing. And he was actually, what he was doing is he was going, he was kind of on like an open feeding face. Um, and he would enter, I was glassing him up from maybe like a mile, mile and a half away. Uh-huh. And he was entering into this stand of quakies that was kind of, it's, it was like a, I don't even know how to explain it. It was like a, like a little strip of quakies that was maybe 100 yards wide and 100 yards long. But if he, you go into those quakies and you head straight downhill, it turns into a giant stand. So it was like a little offshoot coming off the top of the quakey stand. Okay. And so he was entering into that strip every day, and he was entering the quakey so early that I wasn't even able to get really any good footage of him. In order for me to actually see this deer, I would pick him up with my spotting scope, and I would go, there's a deer, but it was still early enough. You ever tried to zoom your scope in when it's, when it's still in the gray light and it just yeah. gets dark? You right, so yeah. I was, I actually found that if you hook your phone scope up and put your phone scope on your spotting scope, your camera on your phone will adjust the lighting so that you can see what it is when you zoom in. So That's a really good tip. Yeah. So I, I, see this, I see this deer going in. I, I can't get my scope to zoom in, so I hurry and throw my phone on, and sure as shit, it's him, and he's entering the trees. And he was going in within, like, the first 15 minutes of gray light every time I had seen him. And so I think those maybe three days where I couldn't turn him up, he had probably just entered uh, entered the Quakies before it was wide enough to really glass. But um, I ended up following him into those Quakies one day. I hung a camera on, like, the most pronounced game trail I could find inside those Quakies. I could never... I think there were some guys that might have seen him in the evening time. Personally, I never saw him in the evening, uh-huh. but I know enough about I know enough about deer. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever had this same experience, but usually in evenings, evenings aren't as productive for me. The right. evening hunts are is like a morning hunt. But I found if you can glass into inside the tree line, you can pick deer up that are almost like staging up to come out when it gets dark enough. So I figured there was a possibility that I could catch him either going to bed or coming from bed, and it was the most pronounced game trail. It was a narrow band of trees. So I get in there. I hang a tree stand. Uh, 
trim in some shooting lanes. I set a camera on it. I uh, I actually put a wireless camera in there. At, sorry to interrupt you, but at this point, oh, good? do you have you got a good look at him this year? Like, do you know how big he is, or have you just seen him only in the gray light? Oh no, he's he's at the the first might have been the first time I saw him that I I was convinced he was forty inches wide. Like oh, I I you know talked to him this year. Oh yeah, to give you an idea, so he. The deer had lost maybe like an inch and a half of one of his ears from frostbite. If you look at the game camera photos I've posted, uh-huh. he lost about an inch and a half off of one of his ears. And so when I'm trying to judge his width and I'm looking at his ears, that's why I was thinking 40 is because one of his ears was you know, <laughs> an inch and a half short, and I just never caught it. But yeah. I sent that picture to a couple a couple really close buddies, um, Brian Reed, Hank and James Yates and was like, dude, this deer's 40 inches if, if he's an inch. And they were all kind of like, yep, yeah, that, that's a 40-inch deer. So, and on top of that, his body compared to the other deer, I mean, he was like a horse. It, it honestly was probably the biggest deer. Um, once I killed him and stood over him, probably one of the biggest deer bodies I've ever, ever been around. But um, I'm like, this deer's massive. In that same drainage, there was a typical four-point in there that I knew was pushing 200 as a clean typical. <laughs> the buck I shot, I didn't, I didn't think was going to score very well, but I had, a, I had a score to settle with him. And, and he's just free. He's pushing 40 inches. Like, how often do you chase a 40-inch deer, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, I, put, um, I put the trail camera in. Uh, I'm still, you know glassing every day before the hunt and he shows up on camera and I was like oh my like you get some really clean high resolution photos and was like unreal like just unreal how, how that video the had, video you posted is just insane like that's just what dreams I, made of oh uh, I I couldn't believe too that I honestly was I think my expectations were really low this year because you just hear weird stories about people hitting deer and what it might do to antler growth the next year. And so I didn't know if he was going to come back like regressed or like if he was just in too rough a shape in the winter I, that he had trouble putting on antler growth. I didn't know. And then I see him and I'm like, holy cow, he's like way exceeding my expectations. So the hunt starts. Um, you know, Saturday morning, I'm in my tree stand. Nothing comes by. Um, some hunters actually walk by, like, right on the edge of the tree line, like 70 yards away. They walk by. Um, Sunday, so I sat it Saturday morning, Saturday night, Sunday morning, and then Sunday midday, I actually decided I wasn't going to go sit the evening. I was starting to wonder if I was if I was putting too much pressure in that area, putting too much scent down in the, in that, in the trees. And so I didn't go sit it Sunday night. I gave it a break. Um, I went and set it Monday morning and then Monday at noon, he actually popped up on the camera Monday at noon and was bedded right there. I, I had a wireless camera on it. So I see him Monday at noon and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, <laughs> so at this point I start thinking like, dude, I'm just going to start sitting this 
tree stand from from dark to dark. Like I don't I don't know what else to do. Yeah. The problem was for work I rely so much on my phone to like send messages, uh, send emails, and my cell phone was a different carrier. My so my game camera was a Verizon camera, and my cell phone was an AT and T phone. And I had no cell service on AT&T in that stand of trees. So I'm talking to my wife, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. She's like, you need to be sitting that dark to dark. And I'm like, I know. I know I need to, but, like, I can't because I can't, like, miss out on work emails or text messages or phone calls. And she's like, well, go down to Verizon and, and switch our plan to Verizon. And we can sit all day. So That's I'm like, good wife. Yeah, and I was like, okay, well, I'll do that. I got to mow the lawn first. And I mean, even she was like, don't worry about the lawn. It can wait. <laughs> get to the Verizon store and get up on the mountain as soon as you can. And so uh, Wednesday was the first day. I, I climbed into the tree stand. Um, I, I took care of the Verizon. I got up into the tree stand. It was like 11 a.m., like kind of mid-morning. Uh-huh. Um, slipped in i had uh my buddy clint lent me his ozonics i had the ozonics going in the tree above me and i was leaned up against the tree and i knew i knew that this is that this could end up turning into a marathon where it could be you know our hunt in utah or up in on the wasatch goes from august 15th to like november 30th right so i'm I knew eventually I was going to catch up with this deer. Like he, he really seemed to be favoring going in and out of the trees and, and using that trail in the summer. I knew it was literally a matter of time. I just had to be sitting there. I just had to be sitting there every free minute I had. And so climb in there, got the ozonics going. I, my buddy Clint actually, he texts me and like, Hey, how's it going? He sends me a video of an elk and I'm, I'm standing up in the tree because I'm tired of sitting. I'm leaned up against the tree with my right side, looking down at my phone, and the video plays. I watch it. I rewind it, and I'm watching it again. And I look up just to, like, kind of check my surroundings, and he's at, like, 20 yards coming straight at me. No way. Oh, my. I, I about, like, every... That is the first deer I've ever shot out of a tree stand. Every other one of them has been spot and stock. Um, and I've shot, I've gone nine years straight on the Wasatch front with my bow. So I've gotten to the point where I'm pretty cool, calm, and collected when it comes time to executing a shot. Like, I'm yeah, I'm really calm, actually. I, I discovered that that's because I have, like, three hours of stalking to get my mind around it. When this year, when I looked up, dude, I started shaking. Like, <laughs> my legs are quivering. I was like, do I have, like, am I going to be able to get away with sitting down so my legs aren't shaking and I can execute a clean shot? Like, and then I, I, I had to start digging deep and giving myself a pep talk with, like, yeah. dude, get your shit together. Like, <laughs> you are not going to screw this up. And, uh, I reach over, I get my bow. The trail that they use, it comes... I didn't know. All I knew on my game camera was that the deer would exit the trees going east and west. But once he was in the trees, I didn't know necessarily which direction he came. So him coming straight up the gut at me, 
it kind of surprised me. I didn't know that's the direction he was going to be coming from. Um, but I knew once he got to this trail, he was going to turn and start heading for the tree line. And it's like 6.30 p.m. And uh, so I had an arrow knocked and ready already. Um, this deer literally walks directly under the tree I'm in. Like, oh. I, I could drop my bow on top of his head. <laughs> he gets up where he's about five yards above me and turns onto this trail and starts to walk. And I didn't really know when I was going to get my shot because as he's doing this the whole time, he would take, you know, five or 10 steps and then stop and kind of like survey what's going on in the trees around him. And then he'd walk a little more and stop and like very cautious. And so kind of just watching him, he gets onto the trail. I draw back. Um, he walks a few steps, stops, soon as he stops i put that pin right behind his shoulder and touched off hammered him he spins around runs straight back past me sprayed blood on the tree that my tree stand is in um takes off into bed like i end up losing him about 50 yards he goes out of sight and i'm like what the hell just happened like i <laughs> i i honestly have no idea what just happened i i'm guessing he was probably 12 to 15 yards when I shot him. Um, so I, I end up getting out of the tree. I call Hank and James Yates because they had, you know, I had talked to them the most about this deer and kind of like game planning with them. And, and they both knew my track record with this deer. And so I call them, drop down into the bottom of this canyon, meet them, um, and then we hike back up in together up into this stand of trees and we jump on the blood trail and so pretty good blood. Yeah, pretty good blood. He's going side hill and then he turns and starts going straight downhill and the blood goes to shit. I mean, bad, <laughs> like hands and knees at sections looking for pin drops. So we, we end up following his blood to where he goes straight down this hillside and hits the bottom of a canyon where it's fairly flat. Uh-huh. And it's now maybe gone 400 yards. Oh, sure. And, you get flashbacks at this point. <laughs> oh, dude, I was... And we're looking for pin drops. It's now shot the deer at about 6.30, took a couple hours for my buddies to drive up and hike in. Yeah. You know, we start looking... 30 minutes before dark, so it's probably 8.30-ish in the summer. It's now right around 1.30 a.m. when we get down to the bottom of this canyon, and, dude, I'm ready to flush myself down the toilet. I'm not kidding you. I thought about hanging my bow up the year before. Now I'm really like, I'm selling my bow when I get home. Like, <laughs> I'm never, I shouldn't be archery hunting. Like, this is horrible. We get down into this bottom, and we can we end up finding where his blood crossed the main hiking trail where it's like fine dirt from hikers, like just a line of hikers all day long. He crosses that trail and he enters a field. that's like two foot tall grass. Uh huh. And I don't know if you've ever tried to track blood through that, but even like decent blood is really hard to pick through a field like that. Right. So we're kind of zigzagging through this field. I, I'm like, guys, let's call it a night. They're both like, 
uh, I, I think both of them told me, like, we can't come back up with you in the morning. It, I, I was like, I'll find, I'll either find somebody else or I'll come up myself. It's like, no worries. So we looked for like another 30 minutes and I'm like, guys, we should, you know, we should pull the plug. It's, you know, now it's like 2 a.m. <laughs> like we should really, we should call it a night. And they're both like, dude, there's, in, in my shop placement, I entered right around the last rib, maybe two ribs in and mid elevation on the body and it exited right out the armpit on the other side. He was quartered away when I shot him. So oh. it, like, I smashed everything. I smashed, you know, I might have, I, I punched for sure liver. I broke the diaphragm. I would have for sure gotten a lung, maybe the heart. Like, I smashed everything. I don't get how this deer has gone 400 yards now. And so, finally, I get them like back over by me and I'm like guys like seriously let's pull the cord like it's been a super long day for me I'll get back up in the morning at first light uh let's let's call it a night and James is like okay so our bikes are kind of back up behind us but if we go if we go to the other side of this meadow we'll drop through a band of quakies that's about 50 yards wide and we'll hit another trail we can hike that back up to the bikes so I'm like fine okay let's do it so we each get 50 yards apart. Uh, Hank's in the middle. I'm on the far left, and James is on the right. And we hike through this meadow, and as soon as we hit the ridge line, I hear James yell. And I'm like, what did I, – I look over at Hank, and I'm like, what did he say? And then Hank turns and starts running to him. And I'm like, what? No. So I kind of just start jogging towards him, and I start making out his voice, <laughs> and he's like, he's a giant. No. And I'm like, no freaking way <laughs> he oh. literally made it just the other side of that meadow and right as soon as he hit the quakey line he was piled up dead oh. and he was he was completely rigged uh arrow was exactly how i described it straight through him and he was piled up like he was on the run when he fell down so he he probably died you know fairly quick he was just able to cover a bunch of distance and wasn't bleeding very much. Jeez. So what? Yeah, so I like walking up on a thirty-eight inch wide buck. Oh, dude, it was like everything about that dude. I mean, it, the size of his antlers were almost irrelevant. It was like I was bound and determined to square up with that deer after the previous year, like getting redemption and then not just getting redemption but getting redemption on a deer that size so he ended up being uh he gross scored 195 as essentially a three point Um, he's a three by five he's got two little two little inlines on the one side but more or less a three point frame um grossed grossed 195 and 38 inches wide and dude i I don't know if I've smiled as big in a long time as when I walked up on that deer. <laughs> and then I get home. I get home. It's like 530. I I sleep for about an hour and a half and then get up. You know, he's in the velvet, so i got to rush him to a taxidermist. And the meat, I got it on ice, you know, right before I got home at 530. But I got, you know, took it over to the butcher. And, yeah, it was pretty surreal, though. That's awesome. So I know 
we'll probably have to wrap up soon. I know you got stuff, but I just want to. So, what do you feel like are the main things that that deer kind of taught you? Because that's that's pretty cool to be able to chase a deer two years. You hit them two different, two separate years, and then it ends up with you killing them, and he's even bigger. Like, what do you feel like kind of the main things that maybe you oh. you get that deer or that you learned from that deer? I, what was really eye-opening for me and several other people, so Chris Applegate, who I talked talked about earlier in the, the story, who had taken me up there and shown me his summer area, like, dude, we had no idea that a deer that we figured to be eight and a half based on the years that we had watched him could throw on the antler growth like he did at eight and a half years old. Like, you would almost... I've kind of always been under the the idea that maybe around six is kind of peak antler growth. And I'm sure deer vary from one deer to the next, but mm-hmm. at six, he wasn't even like, it, it wasn't even a deer I was interested in, in shooting. He was, uh, his antlers got picked up that year. My buddy Luke holding actually found his antlers. He gave those to me after I killed the deer. It's kind of like these belong to you. Uh, Luke's a stud. So, he had taped those out, and he was, like, mid-150s at six. No way. So he put on 40 inches uh, by the time he hit, you know, over the two years, going from six and a half to eight and a half. So I think, like, that was a huge part. And then also, like, every everybody's journey in life is different. Everybody's journey in the mountains is different. Um but it kind of reiterated that the grind is worth it. Like it's going to, the lows are going to be so low at times. Like, like I said, dude, I, I honestly, that night on the mountain was like, I wanted to quit bow hunting last year after I maimed this deer and he got away. Like I'm going to sell my bow when I get home. Like, dude, I was, I'm like, what, how to, how to like, what kind of hobby like kicks you in the nuts repeatedly and you choose to keep doing it you know yeah for real it's it's the definition of type two fun archery hunting is so i i think it taught me a ton to just be resilient like keep grinding keep hammering the mountain like it it it'll all work out in the end so yeah well it sounds like you definitely grinded that one out <laughs> you went through a lot you put in the work a couple things i picked up on is kind of like what we talked about at first with the trail camera lot like you didn't just rely on the camera you were up there putting in the work and putting in time glassing because uh, if you yeah. relied on the camera you probably wouldn't have even found the buck again because he wasn't in the first place you put the cameras right and i kind of think with that like that's kind of what separates the people who are consistently killing older age class bucks versus just like the weekend warrior that that kind of just proves that for sure. I think I think that's that's such a good story and I I really appreciate you getting on and sharing that. Yeah, and real quick, uh, that HB two ninety five, um, kind of what I've heard through the rumor mill um, is that this bill was also put into place to help put some regulation on outfitters. The way that I look at this 
this is not this is not going to affect the outfitters. This is going to affect the average the average hunter. For me, I honestly this this is almost going to help me if if they ban baiting and trail cameras. It's almost going to be a benefit to me because I spend from June until November. I spend on average four to five days a week, and I'm not an outfitter, but I spend four to five days a week in the mountains watching these animals. If cameras get stripped away, I'm still in those hills watching those animals every day. I have an idea on what they're doing. I know the country up there really well. I've, I've got history with a lot of these different drainages. The one that this is going to affect is going to be your guy who's balancing a nine-to-five job and a family at home who is got his cameras out there and goes checks them every couple weeks and this has given him the intel he needs to have some success it's not going to affect me and the outfitters they live in those mountains they've they've done this for most outfitters i know have been doing it for 10 15 20 years they know the migration routes they know where the animals are this isn't you know this isn't this isn't going to affect them like it is your average your average DIY guy, that's the guy this is punishing. Right, yeah, I completely agree with that. I think it's going to make that, that gap bigger from the people who actually yep. put the time and know deer versus just the average people. I talked about this with one of my buddies, like on the strip in Arizona where they're going to ban cameras. It, it, it's going to cut out a lot of those outfitters that just go, put trail cameras on water and they, they know about those bucks versus people like like Clay Bundy or Trevor Davenport who are out there all the time who like kind of live out there or live close Yep. and actually go out and glass. I mean, it's just going to make a well, big separation. If you look at some of these limited entry units in southern and central Utah, I don't know, they take 20 years to draw? 20 mm-hmm. years to draw it? Those outfitters are on those same units every single year, but Joe Blow, who draws a tag after 20 years of applying, he's not going to know that unit like the outfitter is, and now he can't put cameras on it? Like, <laughs> you're, taking, you're taking tools out of the average guy's pocket with an, with an already low success rate. Like, the archery success rates are low enough, and now, now they can't use those things like i mean yeah like you said dude it's it's widening the gap even more yeah so hopefully if people listen to this if if they find value in it if they think that there should be something done about it they need to get a hold of i wouldn't even bother messaging that representative the senator casey Uh, i know tons of guys who've emailed him he's not responding to anything look up your your district. So I posted a a list of the senators who are voting on this on my Instagram story. Um, But also uh, look up which one is your district senator and reach out to them. I called, I called mine today and I, she was actually really cool. She listened to me. She heard it out. You know, they're open to, to hearing people's thoughts on this, but if nobody approaches them, I guarantee you they vote in favor of this guy. So, that's so yeah. You'll you'll have to send me those and I'll I'll post them up too. Yeah, I'll forward that over to you. People to, like you said, reach out. Hopefully they 
they listen. At least just hear yep. your be able to have some input. And then one last thing uh, that I wanted to mention before we end is um, just on your page, I thought it was kind of cool. Uh, you're doing a packed out contest. You have some pictures and some voting going on. Um, yeah. Let people know that's going on. It, it's kind of cool to go see those pictures and if they want to go on your Instagram and vote for the best ones. Yeah, so I'm actually going to be um – you know, there's going to be prizes to the winner of that, but there's also, I'm going to be giving out um, some bags of Warrior Fuel Elevate stick packs, and I'm going to be randomly selecting people who are voting on these pictures to win those. So if people hop on and vote, they just need to make sure they're following uh, Warrior Fuel, Black Ovis, and Kafaru, and uh, they're automatically entered to to win some Elevate. That's awesome. Yeah, so You'll have to go check that out on his page. I'll post some pictures up and um, link your Instagram. But awesome. I appreciate you getting on and uh, taking the time to do that. I know it's probably a busy day for you, so appreciate yep. it. <clears throat> but we're good. Happy to be here.